Welcome to Esports Boom, episode 11. I'm Anton Ferraro, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Maurice Eisenman. Uh, Mo, what has been interesting this week? Well, as has been the past couple weeks, this week has been pretty busy for esports in general. Uh, I mean, while the rest of the world was focused on Game 7 of, the, of, of baseball, a lot happened in the world of esports. I think one of the bigger things was uh, the announced plans with the EULCS. So just to bring you guys through the facts, um, EULCS will franchise in 2019 and will also abandon kind of their promotion and relegation then. So the league will begin taking those applicants, similar to what happened with the NELCS sometime in 2018. Uh, the EULCS series will remain in, in Berlin instead of in those four regions, which was a plan that they had before. And relegation and promotion from the league and to the Challenger series uh, has been removed from the 2018 midseason. And the EU uh, LCS Challenger series is going to be canceled probably 2019. So this is really big news, but it's also really obvious because it would be crazy if North America would be franchised and these teams would be amassing that much financial security and money and that the Europe in the Europe wasn't the case. No, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, North America was such a less riskier option and Europe was such a higher risk play. And the fact that you had so many European LCS teams that were trying to apply for an NA LCS franchise spot, I mean, it just spoke worlds. And the idea is it's like, okay, you have like Europe, which is this year arguably been the weaker region and to try and split your weaker region like business wise into four separate uh you know events that's that's doesn't make sense well also if you have these it will be 24 teams that is a dilution of your product because all of a sudden rather than having i think 10 teams right now that have high quality teams you're basically saying we're gonna add we're gonna more than double the number of teams and the talent need it yeah so the product would just be a lot worse do you expect teams like um paris saint germain to return do you expect more interest from fifa i don't know about psg but what i'm expecting is is two things so number one this will be a, a place for people that didn't get accepted into nalcs to try again uh, they have a year about a year to work on their application process and make sure that they get everything in i think this will be a perfect place for sports teams particular soccer teams in europe to get in obviously a lot of soccer no soccer team has gone into the nalcs primarily because a lot of them are based out of europe and it would be too much of a big risk to build a brand up in the u.s but to build a brand in europe uh, i think i would be surprised not to see a german soccer team not to perhaps see an english soccer team um and maybe psg coming back yeah and i mean i think we 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 speak a lot about the, um, the European soccer teams, but in the U.S., you know, we've had interest from the NFL. We've had interest from the WWE. Are there any other European, um, you know, athletic companies or industries that you would expect to see enter the LCS? I mean, traditional finance like VC is something that I expect. Uh, not as much expecting other sports teams to get in just because soccer is basically the only relevant sport, traditional sport in Europe. So you don't really have big basketball teams. Uh, perhaps we'll see holding groups getting in that own a, a variety of teams, like the Man City group. Um, but I don't, I don't think you'll see a, a basketball team or or a rugby team coming in. They just don't have the funds. They're struggling to stay alive as it is right now. That makes sense. 
Um, yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And in terms of um, other, you know, wins for the esports industry, it was announced earlier today that uh, Omen by HP and Intel are they're going to be the first Overwatch League sponsors, and they both signed multi-year deals. Um, Omen, HP, and Overwatch have a uh, previously partnered on a major competition. The Omen brand from HP was named as a sponsor for the Overwatch World Cup last June, and now the deal has been extended to the Overwatch League. So I think that, um, you know, uh, what's interesting to me is that the Overwatch League was kind of created to reach these uh, non-endemic brands, and what you're seeing right out the gate are two brands that have already heavily been in, uh, um, involved in esports. So the tone that, you know, it was rumored the OWL wanted to set. I mean, they're not setting it with these two sponsors. I mean, this is these are the given. Like Omen and HB or Endemic Brands, those have to be in, otherwise you're in big trouble. But do you think that's like, you know, those are the brands that you want to announce first? Um, it's a question whether or not they have stuff ready to announce. I think they want to announce brands. Perhaps, perhaps the Endemic Brands have said you know we have been with you like omen has already worked on the on the uh overwatch world cup so perhaps it was a long-term deal perhaps they say you know we want to we want to get the shine because we we're loyal customers to the blizzard brand yeah uh, i think hp might have done some stuff with blizzard before i'm not 100 percent sure uh, i think the biggest challenge will be getting non-endemics because that's the promise of the owl it's hey we can give you guys this high quality non-endemic brands because we have all this traditional sports because of franchising because of this expertise we're bringing in so they have to deliver on this promise and, and time will tell yeah and i think the other thing that'll be interesting to watch is maybe this announcement was released uh, this week as a result of the of blizzcon and that you know they're going to want you know to be able to tout it over there and have their partners speak to you know the relevant parties there i think what else is interesting is that last blizzcon you know we kind of got a taste for what the owl was going to be where you had people like robert Kraft in attendance and you know you know there was kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing of what happened so i think that you may be seeing a lot of um brands and their representatives at blizzcon and you know, keep an eye out for who you see because that's a very telling sign of who you may expect in the OWL. Yeah, I think the other one, just before we drift off to the next story, is that Omen has been activating in the esports space pretty heavily. They partnered with Immortals, they partnered with Gfinity, and I believe there's a, they're also partnered with Refresh. Um, so they're doing a really big push. I think that if I had to equivocate this to anything, um, Razer has become become increasingly aggressive in this space. And they are, I believe, are about to IPO as well. Oh, they're they're also releasing their first phone. Yep. So they they are pushing heavily, and it's a gaming phone. Yeah. Now, so I mean, I think I understand what um, Omen's trying to do. Intel, you know, we've seen them with the IEM, and I think that uh, ESL has done a really great job in keeping Intel pretty much exclusively to themselves. And now that you have these leagues that are uh, are touting that they will provide value and exposure. Uh, Intel is definitely interested in um, exploring what options there exist. I mean, this is really basic, but I think it's important to mention for our listeners that might not be familiar as much with esports that are, are new to the scene and want to learn more is that the fact that Omen, a Razer, Intel, these type of brands are our version of the Nikes and the Adidas's. Yeah. They are the brands that have to be involved in everything. It's a fight. It's going to be a fight of, oh, you're not involved with Blizzard. I'm going to take Blizzard property off of you, um, because 
it's the bread and butter. It's 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 the equipment and and the products that every esports fan uses. Yep, and to some degree, they're way more expensive than your average pair of Nikes. Yes, and then but then again, you know, you'll the argument is made that that esports fans have a a bit more money to spend, anyways. Yeah. No, and then um, I think our next story. I'm going to take two back to back. Sorry, Mo. Um, there was a really interesting study that was released by Streamlabs, and it was syndicated on TechCrunch, um, and it basically compared uh, uh, stream views between Twitch, YouTube, and other platforms. Um, and what's interesting is that you see a lot of healthy growth coming in from Twitch, largely as a result of the launch of their affiliate program. Um, and you're seeing kind of the, the total amount of streamers on YouTube declining, and that you know if you're a streamer on Twitch. Um, you know, obviously it's going to be way more top heavy, but you, uh, you're, you're expected to get about three times more viewership per live streamer on Twitch, which I think is pretty telling. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, Twitch remains dominant. I think that anybody who wants to unseat them is going to have a hard time. I think that the other interesting thing that came out of this was that Periscope actually grew over the past uh, quarter. And I think that's kind of surprising. That's interesting. Yeah. From a gaming perspective or general live streaming? I think general live streamers. More, pe- more people are, are experimenting with live streaming on Periscope. And honestly, I like it. You know, I, I had a good time when I streamed on Periscope the few times that I did. Yeah. I mean, a big thing with the Twitch numbers, you know, they're very positive with regards to getting new streamers on the site. But the actual concurrent viewership remains pretty much the same. I think there was a little, a little increase... But that was it. I mean, that's pretty telling as well because you can get a lot more people streaming. But if that doesn't translate into the same, into more people watching. Yeah. And I mean, they did go into this topic a little bit. And what they were saying is that it's going to take some time for those affiliate streamers to generate uh, or build up their audience. And the hope is that these affiliate streamers will bring in a new audience as opposed to cannibalize the already existing one. Yeah. And also... (laughs) Do you think that YouTube live streaming, like, what kind of future does it have? I think it'll always exist. I think that it's going to be pivoted a few times. I think the YouTube product is very similar to the Twitch product. Um, and it was a product that was requested by their diehard users. Like, you're not going to have people like Philly D pivot their entire business model to Twitch. You're, you mean H3H3, I guess, to some degree has. Um but I do think that the there is a place for live streaming in for on YouTube. I think it has to be different. I, also, this past week, by the way, YouTube had one of their exclusive tournaments. So the the YouTube strategy, near as I can tell, is that they pick um, a game and go a hundred percent into it. Was it Clash Royale? And it was Clash Royale. They had a Clash tournament. I think that I saw across all the channels was about two hundred thousand CCU, which is pretty healthy for that for a game. Yeah, and also you know one thing that I I think the decline of YouTube's live streaming is in large part their own fault, uh, especially when the, with the basic YouTube product, we all know about the adpocalypse. So actually, you mentioned H3H3. So they just moved a podcast, which is a large part of their, which is large parts of their offering now to Twitch, primarily because on YouTube, they are afraid that they will bring out a live stream, they will bring out a video and they can't sell ads to it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, in terms of live streaming, I was talking to... Uh, a major influencer and the way that he described it is it's like you know youtube is out there solving problems c d and e which you know it's like you know sponsorship donations you know all those things and twitch is out there solving you no know, problem e f g h i 
And so YouTube is catching up, but again, it's like, you know, the returns might be smaller. Um, but yeah, and I think the, the other thing that really bugged me about like YouTube Live was that they had the capability to live stream going back to like 2011. Like we were, we were putting on eSports tournament on YouTube Live in 2011, and then it took them that long till like 2015 to roll out that product. I mean, they were sleeping on it. Well, one thing that I really like about the YouTube product that makes makes it preferable for me towards the Twitch products, number one, I think that the the reliability is better. Uh, on Twitch, if my if my internet, if a couple of my friends are using the internet at the same time, it's really difficult to watch a stream on high quality. But one thing I really like about the YouTube live streaming as opposed to Twitch live streaming is the fact that it basically records as the live stream goes on. Yes, you so, have the DVR functionality. Exactly. I mean, I think that's that's a game changer. Obviously, with the volume that Twitch has as opposed to the volume that that YouTube has, I think it's very difficult for Twitch to do. But specifically when you're looking into things like podcasts, uh, live tournaments, I mean, you might miss, like you might go away for like 20 minutes and that way, oh, you just watch or a tournament. Or if you're not actively watching the live stream, you hear a bunch of noise and you want to see what you just missed. I mean, it's great. Exactly. I think that's one of the things that YouTube does better. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm going to go back to back for three. That's fine. All right. And then this one was... Um, so an article came out on Kotaku that um, Amazon's breakaway was basically canceled. It's not 100% accurate. They basically said that they're taking the game into um, hibernation and that, you know, they're taking go, going back to the drawing board and redoing a lot of things. Uh, as of yet, there have been no layoffs announced, so the team's staying and they're functioning on it. But it seems that breakaway in the way that it was demonstrated and demoed um, will not be will not ever see the light of day. Have you um, tried it before? I didn't play it. I watched that tournament that was on that Dutch battleship. Um, I think that the other thing that's kind of interesting is that Amazon purchased a bunch of different game studios. And at the time of those uh, purchases, one of the products that they were heavily pushing was the Amazon Lumberyard, which was uh, their AWS server, but for game developers. So if you wanted servers to run your game on, um, Amazon was going to build fund the the building of a couple different games and then use those games to demonstrate Lumberyard's capability. So I think that you know the underlying foundation is to see how Lumberyard as a product is doing and what the adoption rate by indie titles is. Um, so I think that is going to be more influencing of Breakaway's future than anything else. So let's look at this from a broader lens. What are the lessons that we in esports can learn from? What happened to Breakaway? I think that they used esports as a marketing tagline where it's like, you know, we're going to build an esports title from the ground up. Exactly. And while that's flattering, it's it's a, you know, you need to build a game that people enjoy where you have a nice casual base and you have a nice, like, you know, gamer base. And then out of that, you're going to get a lot of, um, you know, competitive players. On the other hand, it's kind of like, you know, okay, then you look at something like Clash Royale, you know, which has a huge user base. And that was basically built as an esports title from the ground up. So I don't even know if like that lesson applies. Well, I think in, in general, there are exceptions making a game specifically for esports. The esports, esports as a marketing line is not going to be like enough to you sell your game. You can make a competitive game. You can yeah. make a Tekken. Yes. You can make a Street Fighter. Games that are inherently competitive. And out of that, they can come a competitive scene and you can you can support that scene with tournaments and esports tournaments but coming out of out of the gate 
with saying this is going to be the next big esports or like we're pushing everything behind this to make us a top esports is very difficult yeah it's like what is it like shoot mania from three four years ago yeah and also what's it called lawbreakers law oh my god lawbreakers is you know it's 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 scary i mean they they spent how many years building that game and i'm seeing that they're sitting at like a thousand people in the servers yeah it's very we talked about this a couple of weeks ago yeah no and it's I mean, games as a service is a really tricky place to be in. I mean, at that point, it's like, okay, your game has to be free. Overwatch, I think, is the only game that I know that you both buy and is treated as... I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But it's like, you have to, guess, have a track record. I mean, mean, Overwatch obviously is an eSport, but even... I mean, Richard Lewis has a great video about the Overwatch League and his his, uh, concerns with it. And one of the things that he said was that Hearthstone, for instance, wasn't built as, hey, this is going to be a big esport. It was just yep. built as, hey, this is going to be a great competitive card game. And out of that, by accident, quote unquote, it became a, a huge competitive esports title. Uh, similar to Overwatch, I think Overwatch, they went in more with the idea of making this an esport. But it was also, you know, build a, make a fun game that a lot of people want to play and then throw tournaments and build a grassroots scene. Yeah. Now, I. Yeah, um, you know, Breakaway, we have a bunch of friends over there. I'm curious to see how they're going to pivot. I'm glad that, you know, that they're going to go back to the drawing board. If, you know, if you want to take one lesson from Clash Royale, that game was rebuilt 14 times before it ever saw the light of day. So, okay, going back to rebuild. And they have from, Amazon backing them. So I'm yeah. sure that if they come with a great plan B, Amazon is willing to put some money behind it. Yeah, cool. And uh, I think this is going to be your first story, Mo. Yeah, I mean, my second one besides the EULCS. Oh, right, yeah. Well, I'll I'll have one back to back now. So, uh, first of all, FIFA and EA announced their first E World Cup. So, first, before I get into the story itself, I think this is the worst possible name. They could call it like the Esports World Cup. That would be less cringy, I think. Uh, especially people new to esports and FIFA is you know relatively new. They should get us get away from putting e in front of a word and and doing that it's it's incredibly cringy and it shows that you had a marketing team do this who has never worked with esports i don't know why ea let this through but Did that's it not translate better into other regions that you know like german or dutch no uh, as a dutchman i can say that we all speak english you know we speak english and like this doesn't work um, but anyways, let's go straight to the facts. So from November 2017 to July 2018, there'll be, you know, a series of tournaments where players can compete for a spot. So, you know, similar to what we've seen before with FIFA and with Madden, with the Classic, it's very similar. Uh, there'll also be an official league qualifying tournament for existing teams and pro players to win their spot. So the Dutch league has a FIFA league, the French, the, I think English is a little, it's not It's not the Premier League, but it's the second league that has something. So all these leagues have their FIFA League. Germany has something. So there'll probably be league-wide tournaments to play. And then by the end of the qualifying season, EA and FIFA will narrow down the top 128 players. Uh, half of PS4, half of Xbox One. So there'll probably be two tournaments. And they will go into the FIFA 18 Global Series playoffs. So from there, it's going to go to the global series tour and finally the esports e-world cup final so this is interesting i mean it's fifa has tried this before a little bit with with the champions league like trying to have a tournament around there but this is a lot bigger this will be a lot more international fifa viewership has been lagging 
it is a great engagement tool for sports teams to get into esports, soccer teams to get into esports and have someone represent the team and and it and it works very well on a local basis but the viewership numbers are are not impressive. I hope that particularly FIFA and EA learn from those mistakes and work on something better. Yeah, and I do think that one of the things that EA has been pretty good about in the last few years is supporting the esports scene. Um, their Madden program has been really good. I think that you know their FIFA program has been really good. And what successes they've had, they've been able to translate into other titles. So if you look, okay, like from a financial perspective, their uh, FIFA player packs did really well about two years ago, and it took them about you know a year to integrate them into Madden. And I've spoken to the Madden guys, and they love it. You they mean say, FIFA Ultimate Team. FIFA Ultimate yeah. Team, Madden Ultimate Team, you know, Mutt, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, as they operate these Madden leagues and these FIFA leagues side by side, they're going to take away the wins and, you know, they're going to optimize them. I think that the risk there is that everything is going to become a little bit, um, how would you say, homogeneous, homogenous. And um, in what way? It's kind of like, you know, like when ESL gets a contract for uh, an esports or an esport event, they tend to do the same thing over and over again. So it's kind of like, you know, the same structure, the league structure, you know, a couple tentpole events, blah, blah, blah. Interesting. And I think that, you know, it, it kind of, it, the titles lose their unique feel. They all get kind of shuffled into the same formula. That's th- that's true. You mentioned the FIFA Ultimate product. So. Yeah. I think a big reason why EA is so bullish on esports now is because it's their FIFA Ultimate product, which is inherently the way how you get those players to play for your for your team. So it's such a cash cow for them now. Oh yeah, I mean it's like you, you were talking about viewership lagging. I think the highest I've seen FIFA viewership peak was when people are just sitting there opening packs. Yep, and that's and and that's really interesting. I mean, I've worked with some traditional soccer teams before, and one of the things that I told them is you can get a FIFA player who is incredible at what they're doing and is going to, you know, get you a spot to win a tournament and, and you know, maybe 10,000 people will watch it if, if they reach the finals, if. Or you can get a player that's competitive but has a big fan base that gets 50,000 viewers or 30,000 viewers opening packs on a Sunday afternoon and that will be a, an immensely bigger brand exposure so I think a lot of FIFA teams are actually starting to see it. I mean, some sports soccer teams nowadays, they, they um, I think Ajax actually did this. They have a couple of soccer uh, FIFA players, one of them being their main competitive player and the other one being more of an influencer. And that works really well. Yeah, no, and I think it's going to be interesting. I think the other one that's, you know, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the NBA 2K competitive product will look to what EA is doing um, just because you know they're they're working with different partners you know the NBA has traditionally been really good about embracing new technology you know they're not getting all the data that they're from Madden or from FIFA or you know so I think that you know the NBA esports product had can potentially differentiate itself and then reap the, those rewards I mean the big the two big pluses for the NBA esports product is number one, there's only one league that's relevant. So you're not going to have a Dutch league, a French league, an American league, all trying to do the same thing. So that's going to put viewership onto one league year in, year out. Second thing is the fact that it's one league that works with one publisher. So when the Dutch FIFA league wants something in the FIFA product, maybe it's going to happen. 
when the NBA wants something, it's going to be taken seriously. And, I mean, this has been in the news before, but they're going to put in kind of a a mode, a, a, a practice mode in the NBA 2K product that's going to send data to the NBA teams and it's going to make leaderboards. So that's already, you know, integrating. People can sell sponsorships in the stadium. So they're working hand in hand. So, you know, obviously the reach of soccer is bigger, but because there are so many more players, I think we're going to see a, a pretty interesting battle between both. And I'm putting my bets on NBA 2K. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I feel like I'm uh, too invested in all these sports games right now to put in a bet. Um, I think it's definitely going to be interesting to watch though, over the next year. Yeah, and I don't mind to be proven wrong as long as both, as long as all of them are successful. Yes. So, back to back now for me. So the second second um, soccer story is that Football Club Olympique Lyon uh, partners with uh, the Chinese esports club EDG. So EDG, they're five-time LPL champions. So they recently competed at the League of Legends World Championship in China. They're a really, really good league team in China. Um, but that's not the partnership that they're doing. So I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Anton, but Az Roma and Fnatic had a partnership similar. A couple, uh, couple months ago, they announced it. And basically it's the partnership with EDG and Olympic Lyon will be in FIFA, but not even in the the regular FIFA, but in FIFA Online 3, which is the online version, the free online version of FIFA in Asia, which is incredibly popular in China and Singapore. Yep. So this is really interesting, and kudos to Olympic Lyon for doing that. They have a FIFA squad, but a lot of teams are trying to break into new markets, Yep. and China is the biggest market. And rather than just hiring a Chinese FIFA player, they're particularly working with an existing team. They can use their fans. But more importantly, they're working on the product that's popular in China as opposed to trying to bring their product to China. And, you know, I don't know how big this partnership is, but I think it's strategically very well done. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if anything, it's, you know, not to beat a dead horse to death, but the NBA has had incredible success in China. So it's not surprising to try and see if um, it's not surprising to see FIFA attempt to do the same and use vehicle uh, video games as their vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to say that, you know, as a, as someone who isn't just focused on American sports, soccer is incredibly popular in China, arguably more popular than basketball. So but there is no real particular league that they're fans of. I mean, they're fans of the German team. Manchester United is really popular. Bayern Munich is really popular. But it will be interesting to see if they will actually follow a French team now because of this. And uh, it's it's a great experiment. And it's great that Olympic Lyon is taking this because they are a relatively big team in France. But they're nothing like a Chelsea or or Barcelona, so they can take these risks. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And EDG has a kind of a sick compound. I don't know if you've ever seen their pictures of their no. Chinese training compound. It's massive. It's like a mall. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah. All right. And I think our last story, it's another sponsorship story. So the Intel Extreme Masters are coming to the Olympics, asterisk. Um, 
Intel will stage an esports tournament near the site of the Pyeongchang Games in the days leading up to the opening ceremony, and the IOC is involved in the preparations to better understand the competitive gaming scene. Um, The event will be branded as part of the Intel Extreme Masters. It's slated to start February 6th and culminate with the finals on February 9th, the same day as the opening ceremony of the Olympics, and the game that they're using is StarCraft 2. So there's a bunch of interesting things to this. I think that ESL is a great partner for the Olympics. Absolutely. I think that um, you know they put on great events. I think that they are great at educating new entrants into esports. Um, I think that uh, Pyeongchang, is that Korea or China? Pyeongchang is, China, is Korea. Korea, the right. Winter Games will be in Korea next year. And I and I do think that it's smart that they're doing it in Korea and because yeah, there's it's smart a, that they're doing StarCraft. It's I mean it's no I mean to be honest they would have, League of Legends would have done way better. Yes, Star- but I don't think they could get the yeah. rights to do League. Uh, StarCraft is a lot easier. So yeah, StarCraft I think is like is it in the top ten of the PC bongs? Well, I think it's interesting about StarCraft is that. It, it has, has a history. Has a history, which is important for the Olympics. It has proven longevity. I mean, relatively, and it has a core following. So I think that the StarCraft audience, you know, won't be as big, obviously, as a league tournament. But surprisingly, I think you'll get a significant amount of viewers, significant number, and also, if you would have done an Overwatch tournament, either it's going to do really well. Or it's not going to do well at all. It's very risky if yeah. it's not backed by Blizzard. And I, yeah, and I think that you know, with StarCraft getting the limited support, it kind of creates like a nice litmus test where it's not like, oh, it's going to be big because of marketing dollars. They're going to kind of see like, okay, what is the, like, what do authentic games with limited marketing? How do they do for the audience? I think that like the other interesting one is that about a week. So there was kind of a chain of events that led to this article. Um, and I think it kicked off with uh, early on in October where Kespa lost their, um, what was it, Kespa? Kespa lost its status as a recognized sports organization to the Korean Sport and Olympic Committee. So basically Kespa was um, an organization that governs a lot of esports practices in Korea and they lost their ability to organize Olympic events. So they kicked Kespa out. Then the Olympic Committee met where obviously they they where it is more than likely they looked over a proposal by ESL, they probably ratified it, and then they announced it. And I think that, you know, the turnaround period, you know, to do this in, what, like four months from now, I think that's pretty realistic. Yeah. Um, but I do, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that Kespa keeps getting relegated to the fringes of the Korean esports situation. And it kind of makes you wonder, okay, if Kespa, an organization that, you know, has 10, 15 years of history in one of the most you know, esports prolific markets in the world. Um, where is Wisa going to end up? You know, Wisa is basically climbing a way steeper hill than Kespa has to, and Kespa is tumbling quickly. Well, the big problem if, when working with traditional partners, so let's say working with the Olympics, is that you need a kind of Kespa, Wisa organization to help with a lot of these things. And the problem is that if you have an organization, I think the Kespa is usually being pointed at. It's like, this is, you know, we should do something like this. Like, this should be in America. This should be in Europe. And I don't think Kespa is really liked in Korea right now. No, and that's a problem. And especially if a non-independent organizer like ESL can one-up Kespa this easily, I wonder how this will look in the Olympics, you know, four years from or three years from now when they have the Summer Olympics and they wanted to do something more in esports or seven years from now. 
So that will be interesting to see. Yeah, no, absolutely. So interesting development. I'm glad that the Olympics are kind of venturing into esports. And I, that was our last story, but I do want to, you know, ramble with you about another topic Go you ahead. and I were messaging earlier today about uh, esports ICOs. Oh, man. So th- this is the part that like kills me. I love cryptocurrency. You know, I've had some really positive experiences with it, but everything that I see right now is just crap. And what you're seeing is a lot of people who, you know, come into the space, you know, put up false flags of all their gaming and esports history. You know, I've never heard of the majority of these people and then try and raise money. And, you know, ICOs right now, there's a ton of fraud for them. But the thing that kills me is it's like, okay, I was really skeptical when Rick Fox entered esports because it was an outsider and he did really well. And I think he did a terrific job for esports. And part of me is kind of like, am I being unfair to all these ICOs by just doubting outsiders or is it something or is is there a cautionary tale? So so here's the here's the issue. So I, you know, I'm relatively comparison to you. I'm new to the scene. I mean, comparison to you, almost everyone's new to the scene, but so I'm I'm not one to talk to say like oh they're new therefore they're untrustable. I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I think you're one of the ICOs that you're referring to is esports.com, but they can be any other ICO. So I don't want to pick one out. But I think 99% of esports ICOs are all the same. They are an interesting idea, but the question is they you know they raise a lot of money. They write a white paper, which doesn't say anything and is full of holes. It's a lot of like really positive marketing, like training arenas. But the one thing they all have in common is gambling. Yeah. And also they say, you know, they all say I'm a lifelong gamer. That's not important. That's a, sorry. That's just a pet peeve of mine. Like it's yeah. not important. We're all lifelong like, gamers. You, we all got Mario when like, we were seven. You, you can say you don't have as much experience in esports, but you have a very big idea and you're here to do something. My biggest problem with ICOs is that companies can raise millions of dollars for an idea that if they would go to traditional venture capital, people that actually look through this type this type of stuff for work, maybe would get $100,000, maybe would get something. Now they, these guys get millions of dollars and it's just a waste of money and it hurts our industry, particularly because I love cryptocurrency. I love the idea of ICOs. I love the fact that you and I can invest some of our money into a company but the downside of that is, is that when you use a buzzword like esports and when you go into an industry where it's so difficult to distinguish from a good product and a bad product, unless you're actually in the industry and you can understand that, it's so easy for someone to say like, oh, I, I love esports. Like, oh, this looks like an awesome idea. Let me invest in it. Of course, I'm going to get ROI. Like, look at all this money coming into the scene. So I think that's really a big problem. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that for an esports ICO to stand out to me, regardless of anything, I would just love to not see gambling in it. Because I think that is the one common thing in all of them. And I, you know, I enjoy, you know, a wager here, a wager there. But it's, you know, there's other functionality that cryptocurrency can offer if you put in the work. And I feel like all these guys are seeing is that they just want the high margins of a house rake. So... I'm gonna. I think there are a couple of categories of esports ICOs you see right now, and I would like to see if you think there's other opportunities for uh, for ICOs and for the blockchain in esports. So number one is a tournament platform. They're all tournament platforms. Yeah, yeah. I'm not excited about tournament platforms. They're all gambling sites. Yeah, not excited. And and third, they're all like marketplaces. 
Yeah, I mean, the marketplaces is interesting. I, the one I would, like, the opportunity that, that I see for an ICO is with a, you know, a platform like Ethereum that allows uh, programmatic contracts, mm-hmm. some kind of, you know, um, an esports retirement plan. Because let's say you figure out a way to crowdfund, you know, a token uh, through the fans and it's programmatically paid out to players and it protects the players. It acts something like an annuity and... You know, you, you figure out a way to give value to the fans, you know, like, you know, action, support, like, oh, this guy supported Make-A-Wish. So, you know, you know, people are more likely to donate or even to him. they Or even they get, you know, the, the fans will, the players will do some type of activation yeah. with the fans. And everybody talks about how like a player's union, you know, it has to be outside of an entity like Riot. It has to be outside of an entity like Blizzard. And, you know, with everything, with esports, we've seen everything decentralized to platforms like Twitch and, you know, well, really bad example of decentralizing, but it's kind of like, you know, you're not, um, you're not functioning through pipelines, right? Um, so I would like to see, I see that as an opportunity for tokens and I would and the only person that I see going up this vertical right now is that co-founder of Navi. And I think it's going to be a potentially super lucrative place to be. Yeah, so there are two things I want to go through about this before we end our recording. Is Number one is talk about an ICO that I think might have, might have potential in esports. And secondly, give some tips, both you and I, what to look for when you see an esports ICO. So yeah. number one is I want to discuss Kingwin is making an ICO. So Kingwin, they're a, po- a company from Warsaw, Poland. They are a very big market platform for esports, and they're making an ICO. I think just to raise money. I don't think they are. You know, they're doing some stuff with the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, both them and Raul over at Unicorn. Yeah, but they've already done their ICO. No, but yeah, I mean, they, they both of those companies did their ICO, I think, right? But they both went through a down round in the last six months where, you know, their product kind of stagnated. And I think that this is more of a function of how do I keep the company going? You know, I think Kingwin had some layoffs. I think, you know, Unicorn was kind of quiet for a while. Um, so for them, it was just, you know, okay, we're not, we're not in a position to raise a Series B or a Series C on the terms that we want. Uh, doing an ICO is way more lucrative. So um, I agree. And just to end, you know, I'll give some tips that I think if you're looking so at So I ICO, guess my tip is look at the history of the company yes. and try and find out their purpose. So I think I have a couple, a couple things. And I don't know nearly as much about ICOs than you do. I mean, you have, you have written an article about this that I would prefer to. Um, but I think number one is look at the, at the people. Look at the, look at the management team. Just like a regular VC, like look at the company. Look at the people. You know, what do they know about esports? I don't honestly like I don't care as much if they are relatively new to the scene, but dude, maybe maybe they were a CEO of a company that that made, you know, 50 million dollars and they just know how to run businesses an entertainment company and they're making content. You know, maybe that 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 is fine. But also make sure that the people who are the crypto side of it actually are actually are are valid experts in that field, because a lot of times people are much, much too focused on the esports side. But then it's an ICO and they look at the people doing that and it's just you know some some hobbyists look at the engineers too i mean because it's like you know people will 
people will demonstrate, you know, their business ability, but if they don't have the technical engineering ability to execute these projects, that's also a red flag. Um, you know, even some of the earlier gambling ICOs that I kind of dug into, they were, they looked more promising just because it was a bunch of guys who've built technical products before. Yes. Um, and then the other one that was kind of interesting, it's not, it wasn't an esports ICO, but it came out earlier today that somebody raised like a hundred million dollar fund for like, you know, a token product. And, uh, Four out of the six people that, you know, were listed as advisors when contacted said, we are not advisors to, to this company. So again, it's kind of like, okay, pay attention to something before you invest. Yeah. And pay attention to the products. Like, is this something unique? I mean, the, the problem, and we, I think I've stumbled upon this before. I don't want to talk for you is I've learned a hard way when you're marketing something in esports, never say we're the first ever or never say the first or something like that, unless you're 100% sure that you are. Yeah, no, 100%, yeah. So when you're reading through these white papers and read through them, because you're putting down, you know, a couple grand into this company, they're worth an hour reading through through that white paper. Make sure that everything they say is correct. Yeah, look at their roadmap, look at their competition. You know, just because they're in, in crypto doesn't mean that they're going to succeed where yes. somebody who wasn't in crypto crypto is almost kind of like the internet bubble of the early 2000s you know all these ideas that you know flatlined in 2000 they weren't necessarily bad it was just too early in the market um so you're seeing a lot more success with companies like amazon and facebook later like 10 years down the road um but yeah no it was it's just keep it pay attention to it just because bitcoin is about to cross 7,000 and they're up 800 800 for the year that doesn't mean that every esports ICO that you see will have those types of returns. It's, in fact, it's very unlikely. Yes. All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode of Esports Boom. And Tom, where can people follow you? You guys can follow me on Twitter at Joker Can't Spell. And Mo, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at M-R-I-E-I-M-R-E-I-S-E-N-M-A-N-N. Thank you for listening. <laughs>